podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. My name is Tiffany Mara, and I'm the director at CEW+. One of my passions over the past 20 years working at U of M has been to capture stories of strength at U of M to inspire others. I've found storytelling to be a powerful tool to highlight unique ways in which individuals demonstrate their strength when faced with similar challenges. This podcast project is a continuation of that work, and I'm grateful that you're willing to speak to me about your experiences. I'm fascinated by your work to understand how particles can impact drug delivery and imaging, and because of your vast number of awards that cross over so many different categories of service, mentorship, research, innovation, I'm just really honored to get to talk to you today. Would you mind introducing yourself, describing your path to U of M, and talking about your research? So, my name is Lola Iniola Defesa. I have a PhD in chemical engineering, which my academic career started at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, or UMBC. I was a transfer student to UMBC, and somewhere in my, at the end of my first semester, I got the opportunity to work and do research in the lab of the sole African-American faculty there in my department, Janice Lumpkin. And that uh, semester, I think, changed the course of my career in terms of me ending up in an academic path. Research with her really opened my eyes to the discovery of science and the excitement that lies within that. And so from that, that interaction, it really set the course for graduate school. It was also that interaction that introduced me to the Maya Hall Scholar Program, which ended up being a part of, at that time, most students that were a part of that program came in as a freshman, and, and I became the first transfer student that they admitted into that program. So through my health program, I ended up engaging with more research, solidified my interest in doing graduate research, and so I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania, also in chemical engineering, and I did my PhD there. Um, and, and so it, it really was at 10 um, that I got the best of both worlds in, in the sense that growing up in Nigeria, where most kids are exposed to sciences and science is celebrated, medical path for, it really is the top of the of the uh, pyramid in terms of a career. But recognizing when I came to the U.S. that biology wasn't necessarily my, my thing, um, I was sort of heartbroken to, to know that I wasn't going to be a medical doctor. And so then with graduate research, I realized that there's a lot of engineering uh, in medicine um, and that the human body, in my view, is one of the best design, designed machine out there that can run for close to 100 years. I ended up interacting with research that allowed me to sort of merge my curiosity about the human body with engineering. And actually, once you get to through the curriculum of chemical engineering, it actually isn't such a big leap because you think of chemical engineers and you think of the oil industry and you think of oil pipes and moving crude oil from one location to the other. Turns out that the blood vessels are exactly that. You're moving slurry of liquid that contains 
particle cells, proteins, and you're moving it throughout the body, and, and the, the blood vessel does that job, and the heart as the pump ensures that that keeps going. So there's a lot of engineering in blood flow, and so then that's sort of where my path got a field in terms of using my chemical engineering skills to try and understand how cells interact in blood. And the natural extension of that is trying to understand how particles interact in blood. And this was an interesting question um, at the time I was starting graduate school because medicine was moving into that phase of targeted drug delivery because we have exhausted what would call the sort of therapeutics that can be done at taken orally. You need the next level in terms of having high efficacy for some of the diseases that we, we still deal with in the human population, cancer being one of those cardiovascular disease. And of course, now we have things like viral infection and and novel viruses that we have to deal with. So often there is a need to go through blood for for delivery and injecting something directly into the blood that's going to impact throughout the body. In some cases, it's not ideal because sometimes you're injecting something that has high potency. So then there is, again, a need or a high demand for looking for what we call carriers that can then be packaged with these drugs. And then the next phase is how do you engineer that package, that carrier to go to the right location without uh, dumping the dose elsewhere. So that, of course, opened more doors for engineering medicine, and that's the space that my lab exists in right now, trying to understand what are the interactions that exist when I put a nanoparticle or microparticle in blood with the cells that live in blood, and how can we leverage that interaction to achieve our, our goal, which is to specifically guide a carrier to a location to deliver a therapeutic at that location and at that location only for the purpose of having high efficacy in the drug function without the side effects that we often see otherwise. Sure. Now, prior to COVID, what was your research focused on as far as illness and disease? Did you have a specific area of research around cancer or diabetes? Or So we were mostly focused with cardiovascular disease, so atherosclerosis, which is sort of the plug-in of arteries that end up leading to coronary artery disease and, and subsequently could cause a heart attack if you clog a vessel or, or the, the plaque ruptures. Or in some cases, if the vessel is in the brain, it can lead to stroke. So that uh, had been uh, the main focus of my lab in trying to understand how do we get our particles to navigate to those large vessels that are often affected by this disease. And when there, what do we understand about the blood flow in those areas? They're often high pressure. They're often sort of disturbed flow. How can we design something to be able to be captured in those blood vessels and only there? So that had been the focus of of the lab in the process of our work, because one of the things my lab uh, tries to do is to bridge the gap between animal models and human blood with the understanding that there are differences in the blood in different species and and those differences actually matter when you're thinking about how cells interact with particles blood flows and things like that so in that process of going back and forth between the animal model and, and human blood in vitro we were noticing intimate interaction between our particles and immune cells um that was actually 
changing the behavior of the immune cells. And so then we sort of zoomed in on that. And that led us to start thinking about lung injury, lung disease. So we started with a heart disease and then began to move in the lung, in the lung disease area. And there's a lot of interface between lung and heart. Any, anyways, it was a natural trans- transition, which then, of course, positioned us well with COVID because a lot of what's happening with COVID is happening in the lungs. Yeah, so, you know, most of us, we heard about COVID and we were worried about our own personal safety. How did the translation happen in your mind to make the switch of your lab and the focus of those in your lab to make the jump between the particle package delivery of therapeutics to COVID? Yeah, so again, of course, we were all dealing with the unexpected ram down in research for a student that was sort of a traumatic thing because this is something they have invested their life in. Many of them enjoy what they're doing and that and not seeing why, you know, because a, a virus is not something you see, yet your your livelihood is being upended in that process. So then, of course, as we're going through that, you're hearing the news of this is what's happening in Italy. This is what's happening in their lungs. All of a sudden, we're getting information about interactions and immune response in the blood. We're getting information about lack of lung function. We're getting information about needing to put them in ventilator because they're experiencing lung injury and lung damage. And so that right away is what triggered us to say, wait a minute, we've been working on a technology. We've been trying to understand how... um, our particles interact with immune cells. This is a natural thing for us to, to sort of pivot to. And so then uh, I, I called a couple of my students and I said, this is an interesting news that's coming out of the media as well as the medical community on COVID. Would any of you be interested in sort of playing around with what we have to see if it might be relevant in this disease? So that's sort of how we got to that point. So it sounds like you started the work in February, because that's when Italy was starting to break out. How soon did you realize that this was going to be an important topic to cover? Well, (laughs) I think we were more thinking about it from an interesting topic to cover rather than an important topic to cover. So I think the way I always ran my lab is to encourage myself as well as the graduate students that I work with to look at problems that they find interesting because my view is when you're interested in something, you will give it your all, certainly better than average. And in that process is where you are going to be creative. Uh, and so, so for us, it was, oh, this is an interesting problem to think about. We wondered whether, and that's sort of the day-to-day questions we would ask ourselves, what if, what if, and we just keep going. So it's, it really is, again, driven by our thinking of it as an interesting problem, which in many cases, those interesting problems also are important problems. And this was one of those examples where there was a perfect overlap between it's been an interesting problem for us as well as an important problem for the pandemic. Yeah, so all right, I'm going to completely botch this, but my understanding is that the work that you're doing, it's trying to almost distract the immune response so that way the lungs don't become filled with fluid, which sounds a little bit different than just particle delivery of therapeutics. 
Uh, no, I think you, you did not get it wrong at all. That's exactly correct. And so I sort of alluded to that in, in a few minutes ago, that in our working with human blood and using fluidic system to look at uh, how particles is moving in blood, we, we started to notice that particles, depending on the size, depending on the shape, actually directly interact with white blood cells in the flow, even though our focus in those original studies were to just understand how, how our particles are navigating and binding to the blood vessel wall, we started to see in some instances when that interaction happens with the white cells, the particle actually, in some ways, you might think knocks the white cell off its original path. Hmm. And so that observation is what we zoomed in on to say, okay, under what conditions can our particles prevent or distract the white cells from going somewhere? And then, of course, once we sort of begin to catalog what the parameters are or the boundaries of this hap- uh, the boundary of this phenomena was, we essentially then began to ask the question: In what places and in what situation? might this be useful? Because on the one hand, you might view it as a negative, right? Because the immune cells are supposed to do certain jobs. And having drug carriers that's supposed to help treat one disease distracting your immune system might not be ideal, especially, again, in a healthy person, that wouldn't make sense. But then when you flip the question on the other side and say, well, are there situations where the immune cells is doing what you don't want it to do, and can this be leveraged in that vein? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what pivoted us to expand on that question. And so we are now looking at the particles not just as drug carriers, but potentially something that can be used to distract the immune cells mm-hmm. from going somewhere when we don't need them there. Right. It reminds me of with transplant patients, how they'll put them on immunosuppressants so that way their body doesn't reject whatever has been transplanted. Is it similar to that? Yes. The end goal for both of those things are the same. Exactly. I think what's interesting about what we're doing is that it's a not an active therapeutic that we're using to do Mm -hmm. this. So in some ways, it's no more than than when you have... um, a crawling one-year-old who's going towards a socket (laughs) and you throw them candy and you say, hey, look. And so then that moment of, hey, look, they've forgotten about the exciting uh, electrical socket, right? Right. So so then there's no harm done to the baby, right? Whereas the the immunosuppressant is me saying to that baby, I'm going to give you Benadryl. (laughs) And that's going to knock you off. Right, that's the difference, right? And so, so we think that if we can really hone in this process, it can be a very mild way of achieving the same goals as what maybe immunosuppressants might do in, in the example that you gave. Right, except it doesn't have quite as holistic effect on the entire body. It's very targeted towards the disease. Correct. That's pretty amazing. What other research are you tracking related to COVID that can give us all hope that this might eventually come to an end? Well, so we should all have hope because despite what you hear and what you see, there is an incredible amount of 
brain power going to research in viruses and viral infection, even the science of tracking how virus spread. Those are all things that are going on now in ways that we had not seen, I would say, in the history of of this country, because it's a nice collision of we know enough about the science and we now have a problem that's given us um, the motivation to all focus on this. So there are things happening on the vaccine side. I think people are not appreciating the technology being used to develop the vaccines that we're waiting for coronavirus uh, is actually first of its kind. And so and many of them are looking promising. If they pan out, it would be a historical achievement because of, of COVID-19 pandemic. So those are going. There, of course, are people who are going through the space of all the drugs that we have already in existence and using computational tools to try and understand which of these existing drugs can be active towards blocking the virus from entering cells. Again, that's something that's phenomenal and many work is ongoing where they identify compounds. They Many of them are in laboratory testing. Some of them have started to uh, get into animal testing. So again, there's a lot that we will know and there's a lot of discovery that we will have on hand for when there is a next novel uh, viral uh, outbreak. Uh, of course, there are Technology happened on the engineering side, targeted te- uh, technology along the same space of what we're thinking about are also coming down the pipe. So there's a lot of things coming. That does give hope. I was interested to hear your story about Dr. Lumpkin, your research mentor. Uh, she provided mentorship to you because it becomes clear through your website how you display your students and their accomplishments also through your awards about how you've been a great support to them and helping them advance in their own fields. You know, when you think about your approach to mentoring students, um, what are core aspects of that? That's a great question. So I'll tell you a little more about Janice Lumpkin and how our path crossed and that interaction actually has shaped how I mentor students and how I interact with students in research. So again, I was a transfer student to uh, UMBC at the time. And I remember in the hallway overhearing a conversation between two random kids uh, talking about, oh, you need to do research these days, otherwise you won't be able to get a job. And I sort of went into a panic mode hearing that because I'm going research, I had not even thought about what is research? How do I do research? What am I going to do? And so then what I did at that time was go and look at my department's webpage to, to get information about and in doing so, I ran into the page for faculty, and I was surprised that there was this black woman on the website listed as a professor. And so what I did right away was send an email to her, Janet Lumpkin, saying, hi, <laughs> I'm a junior in chemical engineering. I'm told I need to do research. Can you help? And so then she invited me to meet with her. And so I went to meet her in her office, and I was excited to expect to be interviewed. I printed my CV, you know, so nervous. And I walked in, and she just, you know, asked me a few questions, transferred, oh, great. Okay, well, go to room 308 in upstairs and report to this student 
Tuesday Monday. And so I think that left an imprint on me because A, this was a, a woman who really didn't know who I was, who I sent a random email to, who had not even asked, what what are your grades? Are you a good student? No, none of those. It was just really okay. You can start on Monday. So that experience really sort of shifted my mindset from the mindset of merit to opportunity in the sense that I took from that that she operated from the base of everybody deserves to get the opportunity to see what they can do, right? So, of course, that interaction is, again, what exposed me to research that exposed me to the concept of graduate school. Prior to that, I was just trying to get a degree so I can get a job. And so, again, that tells me that, tells me that um, sometimes it's the opportunity that presents representation when we talk about having more people of color in science and engineering. So I worked in her lab for a semester, I believe. And during that process, she ended up passing away um, right after childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really it was just one term. And in fact, my interaction with her in terms of conversation was really only limited to one or two times uh, because as a faculty member, of course, she was very busy and I was an undergrad. But that interaction, that process is what I, I take that with me in terms of interacting. When undergrad sends me an email, I try to respond in the same way that she responded to me. And when I uh, have students join my lab, whether undergrad or grad students, I always focus from the opportunity side rather than merit. Um, I, I assume everybody can do something and, uh, uh, and I try to guide them to what would excite them. I think you can harness that excitement that everybody can uh, do something creative. What do you see as the qualities for students who do join your lab that make them most successful? Excitement and curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think I, I find that, especially because they're engineering students who are committing to do work in, in medicine or um, biomedical engineering, Type work. So they have to, as engineer, have the excitement and passion and curiosity about the human body to be able to overcome the fact that they're not clinician or the fact that they're not biologists. And so with that passion, with that curiosity, they will keep asking questions. And, and that's, I think, the fundamental recipe for discovery when you ask questions. I love that model of changing from merit to opportunity. I think that's a good lesson for all of us. If we all have the potential, it's just how are we going to give opportunities to others so that they can realize that potential. It's a great shift from how traditional hiring and selection of students in labs work. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, now you've been, you know, trying to come up with novel solutions to fight the novel virus. Through this, you've also, you know, been navigating your own personal life. You know, how has the past four months personally affected you? And I think many of us, including myself, are still processing this personal piece. We're at home. I I have a son and a husband, and we're all at home. And the... For me, it's been harder watching a 10-year-old, 11-year-old deal with the sudden change in their life. They 
the kids have a good, I think that, that age, they have a good understanding of what's going on, but there's still this frustration of, but I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so that's been challenging. Of course, then many of us parents uh, shifted from just taking, having that nine to four daily of kids being in school, which is really the time that you have to focus on career or any other activity that is yours as a parent we shifted from that to essentially seeing parents 24 hours a day and also having to manage uh, kids education while we're still trying to manage our career so for a faculty member like me who run labs who have graduate students in some ways, our graduate students are our children as well. We we have to manage them and make sure they're taken care of. We have to fund them and things of that nature. And so then, really, it become it became a tug of war between managing your biological child at home in terms of their education and still having to go on Zoom uh, or Blue Jeans to manage your academic. Uh, children to make sure that they're also feeling okay because in the same way that my child is not understanding why he couldn't go to school and hang out with his friends, you have graduate students who, uh, so many of them were looking forward to finishing. Um, Some of them just started and they were so excited and they're also dealing with the emotional side of not uh, being told to stop work and it was not an expected halt. It came sudden. And so there was also that uh, piece that, as a faculty member, I had to manage. So, so really, this, is, I think, pushes the boundary of work-life balance in a way that I had not experienced throughout my career. Yeah, what are you most proud of, um, of having navigated um, through all of this? I think I, I'd say I've been most impressed that I kept my cool. <laughs> I, I think I think I was saying to to someone that when we went into lockdown I had this panic of, oh gosh, how are we gonna survive this? Um and and I think in some ways I went into autopilot, which was essentially the okay Here's the problem. We just need to figure out to fix it. We'll take it a day at a time. And it turns out that that approach was very beneficial. So then that sort of prevented me from freaking out. So every day I got up and say, okay, it's a new day. What do I need to do? And what fire do we need to put out? Again, in the beginning of the lockdown, there were many things. I run the graduate program in my department and we were in the middle of finishing the first year for our first year PhD student and they had an exam that we had to plan for and so that was the crisis at hand. How do we do we cancel the exam? There was a lot of uh, logistics that makes that makes that hard to do and so really just holding myself together to focus on the, the bigger issue, which is how do we ensure that the students are still getting the quality of education that we promised, that they are still going through the academic process in the way that we outlined for them before the pandemic, while still making sure at home that, you know, my my son is continuing his 
online education and finishing his academic year in a successful way. Yeah. Now, you've been caring for a lot of people for five months now, and I'm sure before that even. What are your strategies for taking care of yourself? So, again, I, I think I really, truly believe in that concept of doing things that excite you. And the thing for me, that is what is therapeutic. Like when I'm able to focus on something that gives me excitement, then I am renewed in myself. And so many of the academic administrative roles that I have are things that excite me, right? I have a huge passion for graduate education. And so serving as the vice chair for graduate education in in chemical engineering is something that excites me. Having PhD students come in their first year and it's it's this huge world of graduate research in a huge institution like University of Michigan, being able to be the one that helps them make that successful transition from undergrad to graduate life is an exciting thing for me. And so in many ways, because I'm looking and doing these things that excite me, it ends up helping me uh, remain grounded. Uh, research and the, the work that we do in my lab is super exciting to me. I can't wait to talk to my students and say, oh, so what did you get? What did you get? What did you see? And so again, while it is a lot of work connecting with the students, because of my excitement to, to hear the great things that they're doing, it ends up also not being work, or at least it, it ends up being needed. I need those things to, to keep going. And so it, it ends up being a nice, uh, a happy marriage, so to speak. Yeah, I've got two questions left on a lighter note. So many of us are binge-watching podcasts and TV shows, books, different types of media. Are you finding any outlets like that? Yes, I think books uh, have been some be sort of the happy, unexpected thing with the lockdown. That I had a library in my house, in my home office, that I'm never using because we're always going out in the world and working. And that's sort of where my Zoom <laughs> room is set up now. Uh-huh. And so now I can see the books and I've been grabbing them and and downtime I'm actually in a long time been able to read books and and I don't like electronics in terms of books reading and so there's something there's a joy that you derive from holding a big book and flipping through the pages and just reading Mm -hmm. and and I think that's something that I've actually been able to do during this lockdown. Any books in particular you'd recommend others? Yeah so I read this book, Children of Blood and Bone, which is by a new author who is Nigerian. And that book has been super, I mean, was super fascinating, super engaging because it was a happy marriage of things that I love. I'm a big fan of mystery and sort of sci-fi type books. And this, this book was that, but then it was also a story that's familiar to me in that it was set in a fictional Nigeria, and it was about power, sort of, I don't want to say witchcraft because that has a negative connotation. It was about a community of individuals in that fictional world that had powers, but they had to hide it because the society they live in does not appreciate those power. 
<laughs> and so it was about that young woman who had the awakening and fought to bring back that power to the people so that they can live again without fear. So <laughs> that had been a great book for me to connect with during this time. Sounds like a really interesting one, especially right now. Any inspirational thought or quote you'd like to leave the podcast with? Yeah, so it's been very interesting to see the impact of the pandemic on people's emotional state. There's a lot of hopelessness that you you tend to pick up from people because there seems to be no end in sight. It breaks my heart because I still see a lot of hope in the world. And, And so what I say to people is to focus in the moment and enjoy the moment. But as long as they have breath, there is always hope. Thank you for that. Thank you for your time today. It's been very interesting to learn about your work and your approach to the world and how grounded you are in the work and with your family. It's quite impressive and it provides me hope just hearing your story. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.